Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the next evolution of professional development in higher education. Every week, it is my honor to bring to you higher education thought leaders, topics of note, current trends, and new information to ponder. Shows are replayed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and iHeartRadio Podcasts, as well as right here on Fireside, where we create the show. Subscribe, rate, and share on your favorite podcast apps, and make sure if you are here in Fireside that you are following me for any upcoming shows. Today, the the U.S. Department of Education Completion Grants is our topic. The USDOE has announced a $5 million grant program to support the College Completion Fund for post-secondary success. The program targets HBCUs, tribal colleges, and minority-serving institutions to invest in data-driven reforms that will improve completion rates. On this episode, we will be joined by Dr. Katherine Brown from the National Collegiate Attainment Network to discuss the program and the opportunities for institutions seeking grant funds. So thank you all for being here. And uh, I want to welcome Dr. Brown to uh, the show. Dr. Brown, why don't you take yourself off mute and say hello before I give you your formal introduction. Hi, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. I am thrilled to have you here. Um, So our guest is Dr. Catherine Brown. As uh, NCAN's Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy, Catherine Brown oversees the creation and and execution of NCAN's nonpartisan policy agenda, priorities, and research at the federal and state levels. Dr. Brown most recently served as Senior Director at the Institute for College Access and Success, or TKIS, helping to advance affordability, equity, and college completion. Her work focused on increasing college persistence and completion, and she launched a new project to improve college affordability in Michigan. Prior to joining TKIS, Dr. Brown served as the vice president of education policy at the Center for American Progress and vice president for policy at Teach for America. Earlier in her career, she was the senior education policy advisor for the U.S. House Committee on Education and Labor, domestic policy advisor for presidential candidate Hillary Clinton and legislative assistant to Senator Clinton. Uh, She received her bachelor's degree from Smith College uh, in my home state of Massachusetts and a master's in public policy from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, two sons, and an exuberant dog, Jenny, and my very old beagle, Daisy, is sitting behind me, and she also welcomes you to the show, Catherine Brown. Thank you for being here, So and uh, thank you for being part of the show. Uh, before uh, we get into uh, the meat of it, talk to us about your journey into education policy. Uh, I've heard we've read off your biography, your intro, but what moved you to policy versus being on a campus or in a classroom? Um, Yeah, thanks so much for the warm introduction. Um, I'm happy to be speaking with you today about this really critical topic and and pleased for your your interest in it and your long history and contributions to the field as well. Um, Thank you. My journey into policy, I actually started my career uh, wanting to work in criminal justice. I wanted to become an attorney and I did an internship with uh, the district attorney's office in San Francisco when I was in college. And what I saw over and over again was, you know, different people, different rap sheets, but similar situation. And it became really clear to me, even as a young student, that there were systemic issues at play that were keeping people in poverty and keeping them trapped in really unjust situations. And that kind of triggered my my interest in going into more systemic and policy change and looking for what are what is the root cause and how can we empower people with the skills and the knowledge to be their best selves and to achieve what they want um, to break out of poverty um, and uh, and that sort of led me to anti-poverty work and I got my master's degree in social policy and then um, you know I think education is, is a natural solution to a lot of the the ills of society. And so I've spent most of my career trying to open the doors of educational opportunity for students who come from underserved communities. 
That's fantastic. And I want to thank you for all your commitment to this really important topic. And, and when you brought up these systemic issues, you know, as someone who's worked in, in the field of higher education for 30 years on college campuses, as I sit down with my students now in the graduate programs where I teach, I want, I, I constantly bring up this idea of we can't just put band-aids on things. Uh, we need to get to the systemic issues and, and having someone like you on the show is really kind of heightening that uh, reality that, uh, and, and that um, the importance of that, because I think what we've spent a lot of time talking about bandages that we can put on things um, rather than kind of go back and do the, do maybe the more difficult work, but I actually think it's, it's, uh, the scaffolding that actually holds everything up. And if that, until we actually get, uh, the scaffolding in place, uh, those, the systemic problems are, are only going to persist. And so what we do while valiant efforts are never going to actually attain what we're seeking to get. Um, so, uh, I want to, you know, move us to the to where this conversation kind of uh, emanated from. So uh, back on August 11th, there was an announcement from uh, Secretary Cardona, who's Secretary of Education, um, and uh, he brought up, uh, this was at a uh, Raise the Bar Summit, uh, where he made this statement. Um, he said, quote, for far too long, our higher education system has left our nation's most ex- accessible, inclusive colleges without adequate resources to support student success. While many institutions chase rankings that reward privilege and selectivity over equity and upward mobility, reimagining higher education means rejecting a status quo in which so many students earn some college credits but no degree, leaving them with student debt they cannot afford and less access to good paying jobs. So talk to us about this announcement, and in your view, how does this change the approach that higher education has taken to improving completion rates? Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question, and that's, the, that's a wonderful quote that you lifted up from Secretary Cardona. And what I would say is, um, you know, throughout higher education policymaking, certainly in my lifetime, um, it has been primarily focused on affordability. And affordability is obviously a a huge challenge when it comes to higher education policy and and access to higher education. But what we see is about two-thirds of federal money and the vast majority of state money dedicated to higher education is going towards um, federal student aid, for example, uh, which pays the tuition and fees for students to go. There's a lot of, you know, NCAN are strong supporters of the Pell Grant program. There's nothing against affordability. It has to be the cornerstone of our higher education policy. But we haven't had this kind of collective focus on increasing attainment rates, Mm -hmm. um, at least not one that has played out through policy. So, you know, I I think Secretary Cardona's announcement was a really important and exciting shift. And, you know, we know that students who enter college, take on debt and don't complete their degree are often actually worse off financially than if they had not gone at all. Um, They're they're taking on that debt. They have to repay it, but they're not going to get the earnings boost that comes with actually getting that degree. And, you know, there are many institutions that are investing in completion initiatives and working to create the conditions that would help more students from underserved communities to thrive. Um, uh, and this program, you know, I think I think it has two important impacts. First, it will actually provide new resources to um, help institutions implement evidence evidence based models for increasing completion. And I also think, and I think your your question kind of signaled at this, it has a bully pulpit effect in in sending a, a strong message that college completion really is the goal, and that policy, federal policy in particular. Is, is committed to that goal and is going to be a partner with institutions and states in helping students achieve that. Sorry about that. I had a muting issue. Uh, so one of the things that you just said that I want to ca- call attention to, and I, I keep going back to this because I'm very glad you brought up the the issue around uh, affordability. There's been a lot of discussion um, for, you know, 
quite some time, not only about affordability, uh, and there were some some news that came out recently. There's several schools, uh, Daniel Webster College up in New Hampshire, it's a small private institution. They've actually announced a tuition reset. They're going to be bringing their actual tuition down to $17,000 a year. Um, and then you have your room and board fee, because uh, right, and it'll take the combined amount that's currently on the books at close to 65,000, I think, down to something a bit more reasonable. Um, and, and so we're maybe seeing more of that kind of tuition reset, that thought process of institutions saying, we need to bring this down. But we haven't had a lot of conversation about that, um, the completion piece. And we know the debt's there. We know when people don't graduate, that's one of the big parts of the student debt uh, awareness raising that has come even to the public. People in higher ed know that not that that when people don't complete, that actually those those bills don't go away. Just because you don't get a degree doesn't mean it goes away. So now you're doing something what I call chasing the the dragon's tail, where I've had students over my time where they take a step out of college because of a personal reason. Um, and then they want to come back, but their loan repayment has come back and they can't get the payments out of the way to put themselves in good standing to be able to, to get that degree completed, right? And so we have these issues around money, but we don't spend a lot of time focusing on the completion rates. And I wonder, and I, I didn't put this in the questions, but I'm going to, in my prep questions for you. So I'm, I'm going to, I might throw you off a little bit. We evaluate colleges and universities on a six-year graduation rate. And when I actually talk to parents in my role, uh, talking to parents, talking to students, people are, are budgeting and they're expecting a four-year payment out. They're expecting a four-year completion, but we're being evaluated on a six-year completion. Do you think that 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 uh, assessment, uh, I'm sorry, that accreditors and our, uh, what we're being judged on in terms of the six-year graduation rate is actually hurting our persistence in our graduation rates overall? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I haven't thought much about, I mean, most of the time you do hear the need for more flexibility, particularly as the student population is evolving. You know, mm -hmm. when I went to college, the traditional four-year college student was living away from home, was being supported in part by their parents, was was living on campus. Um, and, and that's really shifted a lot. Um, I think the majority of college students at this point are living independently. Many have children of their own. They're working at least part or full time. So we're seeing real differences. And I think that our, certainly our metrics, as you say, sort of have to evolve to recognize that reality and to recognize what students are coming to campus with. It's, there's a lot of evidence that shows that if you have all these responsibilities, if you're working, for example, if you're caregiving, you know, it's understandable that it would take you longer to complete a degree and you're going to need different, a different set of supports, maybe even different course scheduling to make it easier, mm -hmm. compress scheduling, for example, courses in the summer. And we are seeing some innovations in this way, absolutely. But there's no question to, to your broader point that we need to sort of rethink what success looks like and figure out how we best support students and create the incentives for institutions to help students meet those goals. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, uh, we need to start to consider the fact that we have students who uh, are such a broad identity of human, right? Not everybody is the 18 to 22 year old uh, traditional age college student. Um, and our metrics are very much, uh, as you said, it, they're not catching up with maybe who our students actually are and how they're actually attaining their degrees. And, and that is a policy question um, overall, I think, as well. Um, so let's shift back to one of the things that, that Secretary Cardona said in this announcement. And he specifically called out uh, HBCUs, tribal colleges, historically uh, uh, institutions that are minority-serving institutions, 
Um, do you think that the focus and how does the focus on HBCUs, tribal colleges and uh, HSIs, et cetera, make this a more potentially effective policy standpoint for the uh, US DOE than, than just saying institutions broadly or we're going to pump money at your usual uh, institutions? Do you think that them calling this out is a, is a better tact from a policy standpoint? You're the policy expert, so tell us why you think that he called out those institutions overall. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was a really creative and admirable way to approach this policy rollout. And I think it will have a great impact because targeting those resources, these are the institutions that could most stand to benefit from these from from this program. These are institutions that have smaller endowments than their peers. They and as a result, they are less well positioned to spend generously on financial aid but they are serving students who too often have not been well-served by K-12 educational institutions. They come from lower-income families. They may be the first, they're more likely to be the first in their family to go to college, so they don't have the kind of parental support to help them navigate the very complicated process of applying to college um, and applying for financial aid. We know that completion rates are lowest among Black, Hispanic, Native Americans, and low-income students, and the institutions that are prioritized in the college completion grants are exactly the schools that are serving these students. So I think the prioritization of these schools is really getting the funds into the right hands, the funds that the hands that can do the most good to help the students. From a policy standpoint, when you when you look at at uh, initiatives like this, when do you know from your experience that it's actually good policy? And, and the reason I bring this up is that, you know, when we look at where uh, we get, uh, we have to align ourselves with uh, maybe government mandates or grant opportunities to maybe make sure it's like, okay, well, we, we as an institution, we may subscribe to this. We may actually be uh, a institution that has an opportunity to uh, benefit from this grant. Um, which is great, but sometimes I see some grants like I've had when I was a vice president, I would have some of my department heads come to me and say, we're thinking of this grant. And I said, okay, so long-term, what does this do for uh, the community? And does this mean that down the road, we're actually running a program that was not a, a strategic priority for us? Um, does, this, does this initiative from the USDOE in your mind provide institutions with enough um, like broad opportunity to make it worth work within the confines of their institutional mission? Or is it very structured uh, as far as you understand it? That is a really important question and um, one that we've been thinking a lot about. I think it's you know, it's worth noting that this $5 million is, has been dramatically whittled down. So I don't know mm -hmm. if you follow the trajectory of the college completion fund, but Tell President us. Biden, um, <laughs> he first proposed this idea as part of the original Build Back Better um, two years ago when he laid out, actually two and a half years ago, when he sort of laid out what would an entire agenda be. And now, of course, the, the Build Back Better, the reconciliation package ultimately didn't include any educational spending. But when the blueprint was released, he had $62 billion included for evidence-based mm -hmm. college completion. So you try to imagine 62 billion versus 5 million, there's a, a very large gap there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, we have seen, you know, the House and the Senate this year have endorsed larger numbers, so 110 million and 50 million respectively. So I'm hoping more money goes um, into this effort. But I think to your point, what we know about college completion research is that when these initiatives are integrated into the strategic plan of the institution, when there's a budget line item from the institution itself, when there's staff that's, you know, not just an add-on hired for this particular initiative, but mm -hmm. part of the faculty, part of the staff engaged in how do we integrate this initiative into our broader functioning, it's much more likely to succeed. It's much more likely to be there over the long term. And I think $5 million, almost no matter how you cut it, it's not going to get to that many institutions and that many students. And it's hard 
for the institutional leaders to, to look at it and say, this is going to be part of our vision going forward. We certainly hope that's what it will achieve. But I think the better path or the, the more hopeful path is that more money gets invested and this program grows over time. I think I, I'm glad you framed it that way, uh, because one of the things that, that I was thinking when I saw this and then when I, when I, and I don't know, I don't have a, I don't have an inside line of information to the US DOE, but, um, which would be fun, uh, in a higher education kind of nerdistic way. But that being said, I wonder if, because it got pared down so much from the original build back better concept, uh, that they said, okay, we know if we can go after these specific types of institutions, whether it be the HBCUs, the tribal colleges, et cetera, and actually say to institutions, you need to be data-driven, we need to see X, Y, Z, um, as it relates to uh, attainment of these uh, graduation rates, then you actually have uh, data moving forward from that systemic level, what you were talking about earlier, be able to say, we know this works. And so when, when looking to get more um, money, when, it, when looking to get more opportunity and more, uh, you know, frankly, legislatures and legislators and policy uh, people behind it to say, we know this works and we were able to uh, parcel out this amount of money targeted towards these institutions with these metrics um, and we know we can do more with it. I wonder if that's some of it to say, well, if we don't have a lot of money, we might as well make it so uh, you know, we have to look at our metrics and be able to say we, we're going to be able to, to throw this out there in a, in a way to pr the, put the proof in the pudding, so to speak, so that down the road, when it's an opportunity to ask for more, we know what we're asking for and we know we've been able to show uh, proof that our, our initiatives work. I, I, that was what was going through my head. I was thinking, well, it's not, a, not what we would thought it was going to be, but now maybe we're doing this in a way that may allow for some of the naysayers to say, oh, okay, I see what they're doing. What do you think about that? I agree with you. I think, um, you know, and the original conception was actually a state formula grant. And part of the way that Biden proposed it was to say states would take a small percentage and they would use it to do this work of collecting evidence, disseminating the research on what works, lifting up institutions that may not have the capacity to do that research themselves, sort of helping them along. And I do think that's where this is going, is can we use this $5 million to learn more? Because certainly this is a relatively new um, area of research. And we don't, you know, we have some models that have about 15 years of really strong, rigorous evaluations demonstrating their efficacy. But there, there are a lot of other promising practices out there. And if we could use this $5 million to sort of begin to collect and, as you say, demonstrate some proof of concept, maybe different things work in different contexts or with different mm -hmm. groups of students. Are there some initiatives that work better with Native Americans, some that work better with women? You know, we have so much to learn. And the department does have something called the What Works Clearinghouse, which you can, uh, which is a public uh, website and you can sort by area. And so one of the areas is college completion and it shows you different research studies, different rigorous research studies and interventions that have been evaluated. And I think part of what they're trying to do is, can we build this? Can we get more models in there that other schools can then adopt? And to your point, um, you know, we have, uh, at the according to the Clearinghouse last spring, um, the spring of 2020, 39, point, uh, 39 million students uh, left college without earning a credential. So we know this 5 million is not enough to make a dent in that. But, you know, I think that people need to keep in mind that the numbers are staggeringly high and uh, there is not going to be one solution that is going to magically help everybody. Um, there's probably going to be a, 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 a 
almost like a game of Tetris where we see things dropping saying, okay, this one's good. This will, this will apply to this group of students. Ooh, this one's good. This can work with this type of institution. Um, and, uh, we need to be able to keep in mind that it may not just be one big thing that's going to reboot the system, so to speak. It's going to be a bunch of, of smaller things that actually have a sustainable, uh, impact on certain types of institutions, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm glad I invited you on the show. I think we have, <laughs> we, we can actually, you know, have a cup of coffee one day when I come down to DC and say, you know what? I'm glad you agreed with me. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the, the, the program itself has grant opportunities for institutions, uh, to apply for. And, and in your opinion, and you've been around the block several times, uh, as it relates to policy and you know, what, um, what goes out there in terms of when institutions are looking at grants, um, you know, as you look at this for institutions, considering this program, what would you, uh, coach an institution to think about as they're positioning their application to stand out with, with an amount of money that is not a huge amount of money out there to, to parcel out. So how do you put yourself out there in front of other institutions and get, uh, some, uh, a, a, at least a second look? Yeah, I think you're, you're raising a good point, which is, this is going to be fiercely competitive given how small the pot is, but I, I think there is value in applying and, um, you know, hopefully the pot will grow over time and, you know, they may, sometimes the department will take, uh, applications that weren't successful in the last round and, and consider them for the next round. So I, I, even if it doesn't work out this cycle, it might be, you may get some money in the long term. What I would say is I, I do think equity has to be front and center. So looking at the students that you're going to serve with this initiative, who are they? Are they first generation? Are they students of color? Are they, you know, um, uh, Pell, Pell eligible? I think the more targeted the intervention is, the more likely it is to give it a look. Yep. Um, and then the other thing I would say is to really think hard about what is the intervention that you're trying to apply and how much evidence, how much of an evidence base is there to demonstrate that it's likely to work. And so the way the application is structured, you, you don't have to have rigorous evidence. You can have sort of promising evidence. But I think if you're saying, you know, I want to take this model that's been shown to double graduation rates among first generation students and apply it in my context, I would think that would be more successful because there are a lot of institutions and you, you know this better than I do. Um, they, they, they think they're doing completion work. They have, you know, they have mentors, they have counselors, mm -hmm. they have a career office, they have a lot of things that in theory could work, but they haven't actually given some students those resources and other students not and looked at the impact, they haven't really done the hard work of figuring out, well, is this money best spent here or is there something else we could do? So I think relying on programs, and, and those can be in institutions themselves. There are some nonprofits out there that are doing excellent work that are partnering with institutions. So um, there are some models out there. And I think the more they can say, that, look, this has worked in other contexts. We want to try it here. Um, and that, as you said earlier, would help um, the entire field to learn something from that experiment. Yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying, because in my experience, especially working uh, at an institution where it, depending on my I was there for a decade uh, and my last institution and we had depending on the year, 50 to 62 percent of our students were first generation college students. And, you know, when you're talking about the types of interventions that work, um, you also have to think about what other opportunities and other space within the campus that the students actually engage in. A lot of our first generation college students were also Pell eligible. A lot of them were also uh, student athletes. We, had a, we were a division three NCAA institution. Um, and they weren't all the same kind of majors. They were majors all over the institution. So from an academic side of the house, they weren't all in one pipeline, so to speak. Um, some decided to be participating in our TRIO program. Some of them decided not to do the TRIO program, but you know, everything was kind of like, it really does boil down to when you're doing this work is that at institutions to be able to really hone in on where a student is getting that level of 
um, <clears throat> excuse me, that level of care and that level of intentional connection to the institution. If it's through the football coach, you need to bring the football coach into that intervention. If it's through their academic advisor, you need to bring those academic advisors. We had first year advisors who were called success coaches, and then they passed them on in the sophomore year to their faculty advisors. And the reason I bring that up is that we knew by working with that cadre of people on campus, working with athletic coaches, working with student affairs professionals, whether it be residence life or other offices, you could actually create interventions within how the institution works, right? But what we see a lot is in higher ed, um, we look at benchmarks and we see what other institutions do and we think, oh, I can take that off a shelf and just do it. Or worse yet, you're going to see a lot of institutions, I see this all the time, where they say, well, we're going to use some of the grant money to buy this um, uh, piece of software. Now, software is important and I absolutely, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of having the right tools. But expecting that software off the shelf to solve your problems is not what is good. Uh, you're not putting your money in the right direction. Your money needs to be going in a space that is actually about the human intervention, not about the tracking of intervention. Um, and I see this all the time. And I wish that people would stop thinking that a, a benchmarked program at one institution plus buying a piece of software was going to be this, this magical outcome. It just isn't. You have to actually know your students, stick to your mission, stick to who you are, and make sure that whatever you're doing in a systemic way actually lines up with your strategy and you have your own set of outcomes in addition to what you're trying to achieve for the outside world. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, I, I get very nervous when we look at institutions and we try in this competitive environment to say, well, this place is doing this, so we should do that too. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't just do it because they're doing it. Do something which is right by your institution. Now, that being said, from a policy standpoint, if institutions are trying to be individual, and they're looking at policy or they're looking at grants or they're looking at best practice. In your opinion, as you've been looking over your career, trying to get down to some systemic issues that we can look at broadly across higher education or education in general to make sure that we are building up at-risk populations, building up populations to get them through uh, and get their, their degrees and move on to bigger and better things, how do you balance that need for meeting certain criteria or benchmarks while at the same time the institution trying to stay true to who they are from a, from a ground level? Um, well, I want to go back to what you were saying earlier and just to underscore it because it resonated with me so much. And it, one of the threads that I think is clear from the college completion research is it is this human connection and the programs that actually give students a sense of belonging, give them someone who cares about them as people, who understands their circumstances, who is helping them to identify the barriers that are keeping them from getting that degree and then to overcome them. And that can come from, as you say, the football coach. There are some interesting um, transition programs like bridge programs before mm -hmm. students start college that give them that community. And having people whose job it is to connect with students and understand them is expensive. And sometimes I feel like we're trying to do this completion on the cheap. But what we know is the schools, community colleges, schools that are, you know, HBCUs, MSIs, the schools that are serving students of color and students from underserved communities tend to have fewer resources. They're under-resourced community, they're under-resourced universities or institutions relative to four-year private, certainly, and even four-year public and research institutions. So we need to kind of rectify that. And part of this completion fund, I think, is an effort to get more resources to the school so that they can actually have those mentors and have those success coaches as you as you alluded to. So I think that's that's really important. And I would 
you know, to your earlier question, it would advise institutions to not be afraid to say what it's really going to cost. Because if if we're trying to do just like a a data or even an AI, I worry a little bit about some of these programs that are, you know, sort of connecting with students via text message. And that's all it is. I think there Mm -hmm. there are limits to those in terms of how how well they're going to work. I, I agree with you. I, I love, believe me, I love technology. I wouldn't be doing a podcast on, on this platform if I didn't love the possibility and the promise of technology. But it's about community. When you're looking at an institution, exactly what you said, retention and completion are based in students feeling a sense of affinity, a sense of belonging, a sense of attachment to the institution, and a sense of pride of place. And when a student feels a sense of pride of place, they actually build up their own sense of achievement, their own sense of like, I have to get this done. But that doesn't happen through text messaging. That happens through human interaction. Um, and I think that we really need to, to, to drone in on that. I want to talk a little bit, and I know uh, I want to make sure I, I do a, a time check. It's just about 427, and I want to make sure, how, what time is your out? Uh, 4.45. 4.45. Okay. So we've got a few minutes. Okay. Um, I want to make sure I've got this all straight. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about accountability and institutional accountability. And and I want your thoughts on how do we raise accountability about completion in your mind? Um, does it sit in accreditation? Uh, do we mandate certain changes? Uh, what do you think about that, about accountability and completion? Um, I think it's an important question, and uh, I, I'm going to be really transparent and say I'm not sure that I know what the right answer is. I think I come from K-12 education policy, where um, the federal government was pretty aggressive about uh, mandating accountability targets and tracking progress towards meeting those targets. And we ended up with basically every public school in the nation uh, being in need of improvement. And I don't think anyone would argue that it it led to the sea change that everyone involved was hoping that it would. So I personally tend to tread cautiously on this question, but I think an, a first order, um, you know, obvious step forward is tra- making transparent what the different, because we do see very different um, uh, different outcomes by institution. It, it's, a, it's an important insight of the higher education research that different institutions produce different outcomes, even with very similar student populations. So one question that I think has to be asked is how do we encourage students to make data-driven decisions about where they're going to college? Because mm-hmm. it is a pretty high-stakes decision at a pretty young age, or especially if you're taking on debt. You're, you're taking on, you can be taking on tens of thousands of dollars of debt, and you should know you know, what is my likely median earning at the end of this degree? How, what percentage of students like me graduate? Um, and I think there's a lot to learn about how do we incentivize students to go to schools that have better outcomes how, and how do we incentivize schools better to care about the outcomes they're producing or even to look at those numbers. Um, and then, you know, there are some some more aggressive accountability measures that have been Uh, that have been proposed by the Biden administration and others, especially around, you know, there are some institutions that are just absolutely failing students, a lot of for-profit institutions that have actually gone under, and the federal government has had to discharge the the student, the the loans that students enrolled in those institutions have taken out. And so in the egregious examples, it seems like a no-brainer to me to be much more aggressive about not allowing them to to stay in business, and accreditation is, is a useful lever. But, um, you know, I, I prefer, I, I guess I prefer to start at least with the um, winning the hearts and minds and lifting up the institutions that are doing right by students and really spreading the word about the good work that they're doing so that they have more enrollment, more tuition, and are able to serve more students. Yeah, I I think that, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, experience I've had with, you know, mandated uh, reporting or mandated aspects of our existence. And 
I don't know if that all actually gets out to the student. I don't know if they actually are able to benefit from that. Um, even when it comes to things like I'm going to shift completely to other parts of the world of higher ed where we have to report crime statistics through our Cleary stats and we have to do Title IX reporting. And a lot, most students don't look at that. Most students have no idea those things even exist. Okay. Um, and there has to be a better way for us to be able to communicate to the folks who are actually on the, the beginning of the funnel. Anytime you talk to an enrollment person, um, they talk about the funnel and the, and it sounds horribly, uh, impersonal, right? And it is impersonal, but there's the funnel. And so I'm making a, a motion here for the camera, but your funnel is here. You've got all these people who come in through the funnel and then what actually comes out at the bottom, that's your yield. Those are the students that come in. And there should be a certain level of accountability, I think, from the institutions that at the start of that funnel, that students have to go through a certain amount of, here's the reality. Uh, students who maybe fit your uh, academic profile or students who actually fit this, you maybe are, are persisting at this rate. And what are some of the things we can do to help you or something? And that to me is a lot of work, but I think it actually is, is uh, time well spent in the front end. You'd rather someone know what they're getting into and uh, understand, you know, I never will understand why we don't actually uh, provide students with a lot more financial information at the very beginning uh, uh, that, you know, they leave. Well, you know, I was one of my responsibilities as a vice president for student affairs was that I had to make sure my students on their way out the door you know, during senior week when half of them were half in the bag and they were trying to just kind of get their stuff together and find their way across the stage, they had to do an exit interview with the financial aid office. I'm like, why do we do this the last week of their existence on campus? Why haven't we done this before? Um, we have to th rethink some of the business that we do. And, and I wonder, and I've always had this kind of uh, fantasy. So Dr. Dr. Brown, I would like your thoughts on Laura DeVoe's fantasy, um, moving the accountability away from necessarily the an institution and do it more as an opportunity to the students and say to them some kind of opportunity to say, look, if you graduate in X number of semesters, you know, to your point earlier tonight, uh, during this conversation, uh, someone who's a single parent is going to take longer to complete uh, college than a person who's a, a not does not have children, does not have to elder care, does not have a job, um, and is a full time for a uh, full-time student uh, with uh, no financial aid issues, uh, it's going to be a different reality. But you say to a student, based on you, your profile, if you graduate and you earn your degree, whether it be your associate's degree, your bachelor's degree, whatever the case may be, within X number of semesters, we will defer your federal loans for two years so that you can get up on your feet and start building your personal wealth and start moving your life forward. Rather than put the incentive or the requirement, not even incentive, but putting the requirement on the institutions, which I just keep saying that institutions are, it, are not all that excited about meeting those kinds of criteria. We've seen it time and time again, or they just don't have the resources to make it happen putting it on the shoulder of the student as an incentive, that's a different approach. And that's my fantasy. Tell me if I'm out of my mind. Go. <laughs> I mean, I 100% agree with you that government created websites with a whole lot of data are not likely to influence student decisions. And way too often, this is the solution that's come up with. Uh, and, and, and so I, I don't know, I, like, I think... I think this question of how do students make decisions, who are the trusted people in their lives that can become fully acquainted with the data and then help them to understand it and how it impacts them. And, and also just, we, we need more research on how students, like a lot of students will make decisions because their friend is going to this college or this is the college down the road. Mm -hmm. So they don't have at their forefront what is the graduation rate for black women, for example. Um, right. And even if you presented it to them on a silver platter, it's unlikely to influence their decision. So 
Um, yes, I, I, I 100% agree with you that we have opportunity. This is a huge area of opportunity. I don't know what the answer is, but I think a lot more philanthropic and policy focus needs to go into it because getting this, as you say, having a, a conversation with a student after they've already signed on to all their loans is way too late. I mean, students need to know what they're signing up for very early that we're at, we have a pretty broken system of financing higher education where basically the students and their families are taking on all the risk and the government taxpayers and the institutions are taking on virtually no risk because they get the tuition money and then the students have to repay the loans whether they get their degree or not. Um, so it is, uh, it's a huge problem and education, you know, of students in terms of what are the decisions they're making? How do we, how do we support them in making, um, in, in, in taking some risks, but not risks that will potentially ruin their finances, ruin their ability to buy a house or a car, ruin their credit history. All of these things happen if you default on your student loans. You also can't re-enroll in college unless you pay them back. So this is, again, a very high stakes decision, and we need to do a lot better in helping these young people to figure out the right, the right choice. Fantastic. Um, you know, we're here with uh, Catherine Brown from uh, <clears throat> from NCAN on, uh, we're talking about our completion rates of our students and the new uh, program uh, announced by Secretary Cardona back in August, uh, the Raise the Bar program. Um, next week, I want to remind folks, we will be back uh, on the 27th at 12 noon uh, Eastern time. We are going to be having our show focusing on civic engagement in the midterm election and voting on campus. Uh, we have experts from Campus Voter Project and Civic Nation joining us for this conversation. It's timely. Today is the 20th of September, and it's actually uh, National Voter Registration Day. So if you didn't know that and you are a U.S. Uh, voter, uh, check your voter registration today and uh, make sure 10 of your friends do the same thing. Okay. Um, so uh, for our last question, um, I would love to uh, focus our attention on the public trust in education. And and I want to give you the last uh, opportunity here to, to talk about uh, completion and where to complete and being that we are at a critical juncture in terms of how people uh, have a have a lack of trust in higher education. And do you think as you look at uh, completion rates, what can completion rates do to improve public trust in education, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I think the way to think about this is the economic returns that college mm -hmm. completion will generate for our communities. And what the research shows undeniably is that college is one of the best investments you can make if you get your degree. And so we know that communities with higher rates of college attainment have stronger economies and tax bases. They generate more patents and small businesses. They have lower rates of unemployment and they even have stronger civic and health outcomes like voter turnout and mortality rates. Um, and, and as we've discussed in this conversation, people who start college but don't complete are at far greater risk of defaulting on their loans because they've taken out the debt and they aren't getting the earnings bump that comes with the degree. So over the long term, they're more likely to rely on public assistance. Um, they're more likely to face challenges with their credit history, which can make all of their future dreams harder to achieve. So I do think having more people realize the promise of college will have short-term effects for their family, long-term effects for their community, and ultimately increased trust in, in the promise of college. But it's going to take more investment. And, you know, the Pell Grant, which we haven't discussed that much here, I don't want to diminish the importance of affordability because it used to cover three-quarters of the cost of a four-year public institution, and today it covers less than a third. So we really have made it a lot harder for students to achieve that degree. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and we will be having a future show specifically on the Pell Grant. So uh, now that you're subscribed, you'll hear see all about it. So um, it is so important that we continue these conversations and that I think one of the most important things that any higher education professional needs to keep in mind is that um, what's happening on their campus is a bubble um, in terms of certain aspects of student life and certain aspects of the political landscape of their campus. But the overarching uh, impact of uh, disruptions in higher education, the overall impact of what's happening in terms of uh, the the 
the federal government, state governments. We didn't even talk about the fact that a lot of state governments aren't even putting in, uh, you know, one one fifth of what they were putting into public education of 25, 30, 40 years ago. So, um, you know, we're we're really uh, up against it in terms of what our institutions are able to do with the resources that they have. Um, and my point, however, is that we cannot be blinded by our own institutions, political landscape and our own institutions, news and views. We need to be looking across the academy to be able to make sure that we say, okay, this is a systemic issue. It's not just one institution. Some institutions handle things better than others. Um, some institutions are really uh, not handling things well. Um, but there is uh, systemic issues that we all have to become engaged in. And I would highly recommend if you are a uh, listener and you are a member of NASPA, uh, which is the student affairs professionals, uh, uh, one of the larger uh, programs out there for professionals in higher education, they have an excellent uh, public policy uh, uh opportunity for you to stay keyed in. There are people who are public policy wonks uh, within NASPA, both uh, professional staff as well as volunteers who give you updates every week on what's happening from a public policy level in higher education. So I'd highly recommend if you are a member of NASPA to make sure you're on their mailing list. Um, well, I want to thank you for being here uh, and uh, being part of the show, Catherine. Uh, this has been a pleasure um, and it's an honor to have you now in our in our family and in our network. Uh, what can people do to, if they want to kind of stay engaged with you? Uh, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Is that on LinkedIn, email? What makes most sense? Um, I'm on Twitter at catbrown66, and my email is at ncan.org. Fantastic. Well, it was wonderful to have you. I want you to have a wonderful day, and thank you for being here. And I hope all of you are able to join us next week uh, as we talk about voting in the midterm elections and making sure our campuses are voter engaged. And remember... This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. It is a live audio broadcast aired and recorded weekly on the Fireside platform. I'm your host, Dr. Laura DeVoe, and I thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy. It is the number one higher education newsletter on the Substack platform. And follow me here on Fireside, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Uh, links to subscribe are available through my link tree in the show notes right now. Running across the middle of your screen, you see ways to get in touch with me. So click on that and connect. Have a great day, everybody. And now get out there and learn something. <laughs> <laughs>